Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Evan. And I'm Megan. And this is a podcast where we read through the Bible together every year and talk about what we learned along the way. If you'd like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and look up the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington. You can find our plan there. We also have the plan available on our website, grove.church. And if you are jumping in today, we are on day 63. So getting we're getting up there in the in the days, I suppose. Uh, and as always, if you have any questions, please feel free to email them to info at grove.church. That's info at grove.church and put in the subject line a Let's Read the Bible podcast question. That way we know it's uh, you know, that way we know it's from you and we can answer it. Well, Megan, welcome back. Episode Thank you. episode number three. All right. All right, let's get started with the Old Testament. All right, well, we are continuing on with the book of Numbers today, and Numbers chapter 7 opens up with a a really massive offering from all of the tribes of Israel for the tabernacle. Uh, These include animals for sacrifice and various instruments made of precious metals, so you'll see a lot of silver, I think it's silver plates and some gold plating and stuff like that. Uh, And then the offerings are given once per day uh, in the following order. So the first offering is given by the tribe of Judah, and their leader is Nashon. The next day, the offering is given by Issachar, and their leader is Nathanel, so not Nathaniel, but it looks really similar. Uh, The one after that is given by Zebulon, whose leader is Eliab, followed by Reuben, whose leader is uh, Eliezer, followed by Simeon, whose uh, leader is Shelumiel, I'm going to go with, uh, followed by the tribe of Gad, whose leader is Elisaph, followed by Ephraim, whose leader is Elishama, followed by Manasseh, whose leader is Gamaliel, followed by Benjamin, whose leader is Abidin, followed by Dan, whose leader is Ahizar, followed by Asher, whose leader is Pajel, and finally, the last tribe is Naphtali, followed by Ahira. Uh, I thought it was interesting because it's not like an order of birth or anything like that. It kind of just seems like whatever tribe was ready to go. I don't know how they said it. I'm sure Megan was cringing the whole time I was pronouncing all those names as well. <laughs> but you know, it is it is what it is. Uh, moving into chapter eight, so the lamp, uh, sorry, the offering has been given. Uh, we get a quick note on the lampstand being set up. So remember, think basically giant menorah is what is what that's going to look like. Uh, and this is followed by all of the Levites being consecrated for the work of the Lord, or sorry, both before the Lord for the work of the ministry. Uh, they are made ceremonially clean and they have sacrifices offered on their behalf. And then they themselves are presented as a wave offering before the Lord, uh, which listener, full disclosure, I did a deep dive into the wave offering. And the answer as to how it worked is basically we don't know. So you just kind of, I mean, it's in, it's in the name. So I'm guessing you kind of wave things before the Lord, but I like to imagine that Moses and Aaron picked up every single Levite and just waved them before the Lord and then put them back down. That's probably not what happened, but you know, I like to think that that's how that all worked. Uh, And then we also find out in the end of this passage, just some kind of details on how it worked as a Levite. You would begin working at the age of 25. So before that, you were kind of a Levite in training, I suppose. And then you would retire at the age of 50. So your working life as a Levite was only 25 years. And then after that, you were free, you know, you're free to, I don't know, you can garden or sit under your own vine and fig tree, whatever whatever it is that you want to do. Um, and obviously with some of the Levites, there's exceptions made. For instance, Aaron is much older than 50 and he uh, he retires from the priesthood forcefully, uh, but much later than the age of 50. But we'll get to that here a little bit later in the week. Uh, Megan, though, is going to take us into chapter nine. Okay. Now I heard, I heard a cool thing about the Levites that, um, somebody else made on, on their podcast. 
But I thought it was really cool that she made a point. uh, This was at the Bible Recap podcast, which is a good one. But she made a point that, like, the Levites, what did they do to deserve being chosen? And basically nothing that we know of, right? But there's no, like, special because they're great. It's really just God's choosing, you know? And what I love is that we can all take take hope from that. Like, even if we're imperfect or we, you know, we doubted God at times, like like all of Israel did at the Red Sea before it was parted, God can still pick us. And that's pretty cool. So I really, I really like that thought there. Well, it reminds me of last week, and I forgot what chapter of Romans it is, but Paul makes the whole chapter is about how God just picks who he wants to pick. He picked, he, it's like he picked Jacob over Esau. Why? Because that's what he did. <laughs> and so that's kind of the similar answer with the Levites. Why did he pick the Levites? Because he yeah, did. Right. So there you go. And I love how God, he picks all of us for different reasons. So we can, um, and then when we think about the Levites being a sacrifice to God, um, it's cool because we'll talk about this in Romans when we get into our New Testament reading for today about living as a sacrifice before God. So it all ties together, folks. It's pretty exciting. Um, so it in our second day of the Old Testament is Numbers 9 and 10. Numbers 9 starts with the celebration of the second Passover. So this is, Israel is now a year into their wilderness journey. They're still at Sinai at this point. Um, and this is the next time they celebrate it. So this is like the first annual remembrance after the first one. Um, there is a situation where a few guys are concerned because they touched a dead body, but they still want to celebrate Passover. So in response, God says, okay, I'm going to make a rule. You have to take a rain check, wait a month, but then you can celebrate because then you'll be purified by that time. And that's true for anyone who this happens to or is on a long journey. And in that, God even also invites the stranger and the foreigner to celebrate Passover amongst them. There were also serious consequences for refusing to celebrate it. So Passover is a really big deal to God. It's coming up here pretty soon at the end of April this year. Um, And then we also have God leading Israel. This is a beautiful passage in here um, towards the end of Numbers 9 about God leading Israel in a pillar of cloud by day, which covered the tabernacle. This was a real cloud, um, and then a pillar of fire by night. So um, it's just beautiful to think of God literally being physically with Israel and leading them. And wherever he moved, they moved. So he was their leader in every sense. And so at this point, they don't have a king or anything. They have Moses. But really, God is the leader. He's leading them every place that they go. So that's really cool. And then in Numbers 10, so now Israel is entering the next season, which is a season, as I like to call it, mobile church, okay? Pack um, it in, pack well, it out. Yeah, pack it in and pack it out. We, If you've ever been part of a mobile campus, and I have, you will never forget. There is a lot of fun camaraderie, though, as you pack it in and pack it out. You know, only they didn't have a trailer with any kind of neat little boxes. They didn't have any road boxes, nothing, okay? Um, they're going to start journeying through the wilderness and moving camp many, many times um, and carrying all their stuff. So by most estimates, though, this is interesting, uh, Canaan, the promised land, was about an 11-day journey from Egypt. So why are they not there yet? Why are they still camping after a year? It's like, you know, I love going camping, but I really love coming home. Sure, sure. <laughs> right? Taking your hot shower, sleeping in your own bed. Uh, but none of that was true for them at this point. They're still a year into the wilderness. In fact, numbers in Hebrew, the the, the number, the name of the book is uh, Bab Midbar, which means the wilderness, because it is all about wandering in the wilderness. Um, so we're going to see how that plays out and how they're going to get into the land and what's going to happen before they go in. Um, but God tells Moses to make two silver trumpets. They were to be blown by Aaron and his sons using different tones to summon people for gathering, breaking camp. 
Um, interestingly, these are not the shofars that you may have heard of, which are ram's horns. These are made of silver for special purposes. They're blown for celebrations and festivals and things. Um, and the function, interestingly enough, is to remind God of the people when they went to war or they were sacrificing. So a lot going on there. Um, about a month after the second Passover, they finally set out from Sinai. They end up in the wilderness of Paran. And Israel is super organized. Uh, the families of the priests carrying certain different parts of the tabernacle. So like the Kohathites, for example, carried the really holy vessels. Um, and interestingly, they did carry those in the middle of all the other stuff to offer the most protection. Um, but then, of course, the exception being the Ark of the Covenant, which carried God's presence and went out ahead of them because, as I said, God's leading them. Um, and so that goes out ahead of them. But it, it even to this day, Israel is extremely organized. They just are. And I always like to think of this as the the origin of that. But um, they have a marching formation designed by God. So they're they're extremely organized, which always helps in mobile church situations. You don't. Okay? Yeah. You don't want to go into mobile church being disorganized. You don't. It's not it's not going to work well well, okay? Um, So I'm just going to read these two really cool verses at the end of Numbers 10, um, because it's just beautiful. So it says, uh, this is 10, 35 through 36. It says, whenever the ark set out, Moses said, arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, return, O Lord, to the 10,000 thousands of Israel. And that is a that is a beautiful picture of God being with his people in the middle yes. of the wilderness. And I'm sure the Israelites wouldn't do anything to ruin that picture. <laughs> Never. All right. So chapter 11 kicks off literally the next verse. It's, and the people complained <laughs> in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. I get it. Uh, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outlying parts of the camp. So don't just skip past that. That basically means God killed some people because he was he was so angry about this. Uh, then the people cried out to Moses and Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Tabara or Tabera because of the fire, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now, the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again. And they said, oh, that we had meat to eat. Remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. You also paid nothing. Uh, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Uh, and skipping forward a few verses. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans and everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? Why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of this people on me? Did I conceive this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give all of this people? For they weep before me and say, Give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will Treat me like this, kill me at once, if I find favor in your sight, that I may not see that they that I may not see my wretchedness. Uh, so a couple things going on there. I think there's things that are very easy to skip past. Number one, Moses is straight up asking God to just kill him. If this is what it's going to be like, Moses is the Lord is very exasper exasperated. I can never pronounce that word correctly. Uh, exasperated. He, exasperated. There you go. He's very angry with the people of Israel over what they've done, but that's not unique to Yahweh. 
Moses is also very angry. Uh, he continually intercedes on behalf of his people. So here in, he's not taking out his anger on the people saying like, just, just kill them. I'm done. Uh, he just says, just kill me. I'm done. You know, hand it over to Joshua, whoever wants to lead. I, I, I'm, I'm over it at this point. Uh, and so at this point, Yahweh is pretty understanding of Moses' frustration. And he commands for 70 elders to be brought forward. And he takes some of the spirit, which was empowering Moses, and he spreads it among the 70 elders so that they can help shoulder the burden of the people. And so it's, it's similar to that passage where we get Moses appointing judges at the advice of his father Jethro. Uh, here, God is the one who's actually going through and helping to appoint other people just to shoulder some of the burden. Uh, God then provides meat for the people through a miracle. So we are told that uh, we're also told that two men who were not within the tent of the sorry. I should have written this down in my notes. Uh, God commands the 70 people to be brought forward into the tent of meeting or in front of the tent of meeting. I don't remember which one. And then he empowers them there. Uh, so there's two of those elders who were not present at the tent, uh, but they're going around the tent or the camp and they're prophesying. And so Joshua's like, hey, we need to tell these guys to shut up. And Moses, is, Moses basically tells them that, it's not his place to decide who God can and cannot work through. Um, so it shows a couple things. It shows the humility of Moses, which we'll again see demonstrated here in the next chapter. Um, and it also kind of echoes the Christ and Paul, right? When when I forgot the exact stories of both, so I should have definitely written these down. But Jesus and Paul both have moments where someone else is is speaking speaking truth or doing miracles, and the disciples of each are like, "Hey, we need this. We need to stop it." And they're like, "No, it's fine. Like God can work through other people as well." Uh, and so the next day, the Lord uses a great wind to deliver quail to the people. So you get some poultry. There you go. Game birds. Hey, yum. However, as they were eating, God strikes them with the plague as punishment, which I, I love. It's, it's, I forgot the exact phrasing, but it's basically like while the meat was still in their teeth, the people were struck with a great plague. Uh, so yeah, God's basically, it looks like he's going to be all cool with it. But in reality, he's like, you're complaining about the magical bread that I'm having rain every morning so that you can have food or have meat. Come on, people. Uh, so he strikes them with the plague. After that, Israel packs up camp once again, and they head for Hazaroth, which is still on the Sinai Peninsula. And remember, that's that kind of triangle between Egypt and mo modern-day Egypt and modern-day Israel. Uh, after, or sorry, in chapter 12, we get this really sad story. Uh, Miriam and Aaron, Moses' siblings, are really, we don't see them in the best light. Uh, so they are angry with Moses for marrying a Cushite woman. Now, this is really interesting because the word literally means Ethiopian. Uh, and so it could refer to a second wife that Moses took at some point that we don't ever hear anything else about. Um, or maybe the word Cushite just broadly means foreigner. And so it could refer to Zipporah, who is the, the Midianite that Moses took as his wife uh, when he was when he was in Midian under, under Jethro. Um, Megan, I don't know if you have a camp that you land in with that. I think the more I think about it, the more I think it is a second wife that, that Moses married at one point. But but who knows? You know, I've never looked into it. I wouldn't be surprised, though, if it's just Zipporah, although she is a Midianite, right? And that's nothing to do with Kush. Yeah. So I don't know. It's an interesting question. People always be marrying multiple wives back then. So <laughs> yeah. it's just one of those things. Happened where, all the time. Yeah, it yep. doesn't it doesn't surprise you anymore. Yeah. <laughs> uh and they yeah, I guess for me the context of the story, it it almost seems like this is a recent thing that happened and that they're being angry about because it says that they were angry at Moses for marrying a Cushite woman, comma, for Moses had married a Cushite woman and mm. then the story continues. But again, I mean, who knows? It, and I guess it doesn't really matter. Basically, Miriam and Aaron are just being a couple of racists here, so not cool. Uh they speak out against Moses 
and God summons them to the tent of meeting, which, I mean, just think about how terrifying that would be. You're in the middle of uh, rebuking Moses, and then all of a sudden God's like, all right, come here, everyone, here, come to the corner. Uh, and then he rebukes them for speaking against his prophet. Uh, Yahweh then makes Miriam leprous, which again, that would have been an absolutely terrifying thing in, in the ancient world. And this also means that she's to be exiled outside of the camp. Um, Aaron begs Moses for mercy, who in turn asks God for mercy, uh, which God grants. Miriam is healed, but she must remain outside of the camp for the commanded seven days to be made clean once again. So Aaron gets off scot-free. Uh, so I'm not sure if Mir- maybe Miriam was kind of the ringleader of this and Aaron went along, uh, which honestly kind of follows along with the personality of Aaron. Cause that guy, that guy's always down to follow along with a bad idea. So who, who knows? Or maybe God just punched Miriam. I don't, I don't know exactly what it is, but that wraps up chapters, uh, chapter 12 of numbers. Megan's going to take us into the next day here. Okay. So, I mean, this is getting dramatic, you know, there's a lot of drama. That is the nice thing about number. I was talking with right. uh, someone this morning. Leviticus is pretty much all law all the way through. Numbers has some hard parts to read, but it does sprinkle in some stories that are at least like a little bit more interesting than the literal numberings of the people. Yes. So we're going to get into some pretty good stories here in chapters 13 and 14 that are really, really applicable for us, too. So numbers 13. Okay. now, God, they're they're at the border of Canaan. Um, which is the promised land. Okay, it's also called Canaan. The Canaanites lived there before uh, before Israel. So God tells Moses to send some spies to scope out the land. Now, to me, it's interesting. It stops me when I read this because I'm going, why? Like, God didn't have to, right? Why is he even testing them? Sure. Okay. Oh, yeah, I just think that's an interesting point. Mm -hmm. Because it's like, he could have just said, hey, guess what? I'm going to wipe out the people who are there so that you can have it. But that's not the way this happened at all. I kind of wonder if God is testing their hearts because of the way this plays out. Okay. So 12 spies are going in, a leader from each of the 12 tribes. You remember that Israel is made up of 12 tribes. So a leader from each, they all went together and they went up through the desert and they kind of go north up into the hill country to check it out for 40 days. Okay. Uh, Verse 16 is interesting because it mentions in there that Moses renames Joshua, who Joshua becomes his assistant and later his successor. There's a whole book in the Bible called Joshua, and he, not Moses, is the one who will take Israel into the land and completes the conquest of Canaan. Um, His name is first called Hosea, which means he saves, but Moses changes it to Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. Which is interesting. As I was reading this, I I read through, because it tells you that afterward. And so I read through and I was like, wait, where's Joshua? And then I read back through and I couldn't find him. I was like, what the heck? And I, like, I remember it being Joshua and Caleb are the two, well, spoilers, they're two mm-hmm. spies that yep. do well. Uh, and then I just had to keep reading to find out that was the whole thing. But I had yeah. completely forgotten about that. But it's good you were thinking of him and you're like, wait, where is he? Because it's actually Hosea first. Also, so, fun, mm-hmm. I guess, I don't know if you're going to say this or not, but fun fact, Joshua is the name of Jesus. Yes. So Jesus is the Greek form of that right. name. So, right. But he, him and mm-hmm. his pals would have called him Joshua. So that's right. Go. So Yeshua is how, if you are if you are a Hebrew speaker, that's really what you would call Jesus. And so if you have a WWJD bracelet and then you get into the Hebrew, it's actually would be what, Evan? Double W? Y-D. Y-D. Mind-blowing, right? Mind-blowing. Okay. So anyway, yes, Yeshua, which I, I have a fondness for referring to Jesus that way. Um, so the 12 spies discover that the land is fruitful with luscious vegetation, you know, and produce, but there all are really some pretty threatening people looking there that are living there. Um, so when these spies come back after 40 days, 
10 of them bring a negative and fearful evil report about the land and they incite fear and rebellion among the people. Two of the spies, though, Joshua and Caleb, were faithful and they believed God. Now, this is interesting to me, and I'll read a few verses here, but the negative spies, it wasn't that they didn't know what was going on in the land. They had a piece of like truthful data, but they chose to process that data through unbelief and seeing themselves as victims and not believing God when they could have chosen to trust God. So it's really not that they had some data or information or a circumstance. It really all, everything that happened next happened because of what they chose to do with it. And Joshua and Caleb did something different with the same information. So that's just something for us to keep in mind. So I'm going to read Numbers 13, 30-33. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him had said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they're stronger than we are. So they brought the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seem to them. So that's pretty, that's a big drama. They're scaring all of the Israelites and they are negative because this is all death speak. Like we're just like grasshoppers in their sight. These are giants. We can't do it. God's not going to help us, right? This is really, really offensive to God. And so again, it was their choice. Luke 6.45, Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And this is really true in this passage. Um, yeah. Evan. Well, as I say, it's interesting that the, the the Canaanite kingdoms were nowhere near the power of ancient Egypt. And so this is, it's not just like a people yeah. who are in the wilderness and then they're all of a sudden going into this land. Like God just delivered them from the hands of Pharaoh. And then they're saying, it's they're saying this le- these lesser kingdoms are going to be the ones that are going to be a bigger problem for us. So it really does speak to, like you said, they're working on the same data and maybe like these are really strong kingdoms that have fortified cities and all those things. But um, again, they, they just watched God, what, a year ago, (laughs) delivered them out of Egypt, and now they're worried about this next part. So it's crazy. That's a good point. And it goes to show how we can start to spiral really fast. You know, the human mind and our emotions, we see something, we get scared, and it can spiral. All of a sudden, it's out of control in our mind when God has it handled the whole time. It doesn't doesn't minimize our struggles, but it does help us understand that God is hoping that we're going to make a better choice here. So it's easy to let ourselves off the hook when something is tough. And our emotions are valid, and God doesn't fault us for being honest with Him, but it becomes sinful when we're choosing unbelief, and then we actually can incite others to fall into unbelief. Um, So Israel becomes hysterical in their fear. When we go into Numbers 14, it gets worse. They start crying about going back to Egypt, like they just start deciding they should even elect someone and go back to Egypt. Um, But I want to point out that Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruits. And you have to remember that that is so true because you really do. The things you say are going to matter and it does matter. So very, very uh, interesting here. And this is happening because they get crazy with fear. Um, you know, stronger voices went out here and they start to grumble against the leadership. And it's it's really it's really going downhill fast. One of my one of my favorite descriptions <laughs> so. of, of this story is I think it's in the Joshua Veggie Tales, but it's like paw grape is just uh <laughs> Remember back when we were in Egypt, we had all the food we could eat. And this is yeah. another guy in the background who goes, we were slaves. And that's like the whole, that's the whole argument. It's like, 
wasn't all right there. But it's we like, were slaves. We were, and it's like it's almost like hello. Remember that because we were romanticized the past, right? Now they're that's true. Yeah, we we do. We think oh, it was all better, and the grass is always greener. But no. So th- so here's this is going to get worse too. So spoiler alert. I'm going to read uh, Numbers fourteen five through ten. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all of the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel, and Joshua the son of Nun, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes, because that's like a sign of extreme grief and mourning. And they said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. So I love this, that they, they're like, hold on and hear what they're saying, which is so different than fear and panic, right? They're like, hold on, these people, God isn't helping. They are bread to us. Like, they're like, we're going to eat them for breakfast, right? <laughs> so they have a lot of faith. So God is very angry, though, about the people's rebellious fear. And he tells Moses he wants to destroy Israel. And he t- even says to Moses, I'm going to destroy them all. And you know what? I'll just make a new nation coming from you. And, you know, Evan, a few minutes ago said, pointed out that Moses was really stressed as a leader. He was done as well. He's like, I'm done. Kill me. I don't I don't want this anymore. But I love Moses because as a good leader here, he he comes back to patience with the people. He intercedes big time with God for Israel. And he could have chosen to say, all right, God, let's do it. Sounds good to me. I'm tired of these people. But he doesn't do that. He appeals, um, interestingly here, he doesn't appeal to any deservedness of sinful Israel. It's not really because they deserve it, but Moses appeals to God out of the fact that God's own character is slow to anger and abounding in this steadfast, faithful love and that his um, and appealing to God's uh, necessary to have glory among the nations. So he begs God to pardon the people. God does relent. He forgives, but he does say that none of the spies who brought the evil report are going to see the land. So, uh, but I love in verse 24, God says of Caleb, but my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land. So God tells Israel, turn around. So they're not going to go into the promised land. They were about to head in, but because of this incident and their panic and all this unbelief, they're not going to go in. So God's like, all right, turn it around, and we're going to head towards the Red Sea instead. And so um, all from this bad report from these 10 spies, right, and all of this happened, God says that Israel now is going to spend 40 years in the wilderness, and that the generation that did not believe God is going to die out there, and their kids instead are going to be the ones who will inherit the land, except, of course, Joshua and Caleb will will go in and they end up doing so and they get special land of their own that they get to pick. But the 10 spies who were wicked, they all died at this point. Um, and so, yeah, so it's pretty sad, the fallout of all of this going on. Um, Moses tells Israel about all this. They get upset. 
But instead, at the end of the chapter, they're like, but we're going to go in there anyway. And they just will not listen. And Moses is like, well, God isn't with you. It's not going to work. And sure enough, they're defeated and driven back by the inhabitants of Canaan. It is funny. Yeah. Like, you, I, I feel like if I was most of like, you, like, yesterday you were talking about how you can't fight them. And now you're like, oh, my gosh, the freaking yeah. Israelites. What mm-hmm. are you doing? Yeah. All right. Well, moving into chapter 15. It begins with a special list of offerings that are to be made once the people of Israel enter into Canaan. Uh, So essentially it boils down to on top of the animal sacrifices, there's an extra grain offering that goes with each of them. So super interesting stuff. Uh, This is followed by a really important section that outlines how the stranger within Israel is allowed to worship Yahweh. Uh, So essentially, or whether or not they're allowed to worship Yahweh, essentially they're allowed to, uh, which is again, something that we don't think about very often. We think about, it's just the Jews who are living within Israel, but all of the people within Israel are allowed to engage in Yahweh worship. Um, if foreigners within the land want to worship God, they are free to. However, they must follow the same statutes as the native Israelites. So in other words, if you want to worship Yahweh, that's great. You are under the same covenant then at, at that point. And so, but it, it is really cool. Like God makes a way for, I, th- I think, especially with just the New Testament, because of the the argument that we get is with this kind of misunderstanding that a lot of the first century Jews have with the idea of God's salvation being open to the Gentiles. We see it all throughout the Old Testament. And Paul makes, in Romans, Paul makes a ton of references to it. He's, he's pulling verses all the time that shows how this is happening. Uh, but God has always had a soft spot for uh, the, the non-people of Israel who want to come in. Most beautifully, I think, in the Old Testament, we see that in the story of Ruth, who, who comes into the people of Israel as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but God makes a way for the poor to worship him. We talked about that in Leviticus, where all of the sacrifice have a really cheap option so that the poor can worship God as well. And he also makes a way for the foreigners to worship him. So be- yeah. beautiful thing that God does there. Uh, this is followed by some additional rules for sacrifice for unintentional sin. So if, you, if you're curious about what that all ha- what that all entailed back then, you can read that. Uh, and then after this, we find out about a man who was breaking Sabbath law by gathering wood during oh, no. the Sabbath. Uh, he is then commanded to be stoned outside of the camp. So again, uh, God is making very clear that his his covenant is serious and it needs to be followed to, to the letter. Um, God then commands Israel that they have to wear four tassels on the corner of their garments to remember the law that he has given them. I have a fun fact about these four tassels. Okay, I just learned this, so it's pretty exciting. They are called zitzit, okay? So zitzit is just a fun word. You can be like, like zitzit. Yeah, it's almost like zitzit. But these are blue, okay? It says in there they need to be blue. But I learned that um, the blue is very precious. So by the way, Jewish people today still wear this. The men do. Um, They have this little vest they put on that has the tassel and they always wear it. But the blue is precious and it is meant to reflect the sea, which reflects, you know, God's glory from the heavens. But the blue dye actually comes from a special place. So there is a gland in a certain snail that is only found up on the coast of Phoenicia, which is way up in the north on the western shore above Haifa, which is a big city on the coast of Israel, the Mediterranean Sea. And it's at the upper west corner. And and they um, currently there are people that are reviving this tradition of like, you know, getting the snails and the dye out of the glands of the snails. So oh, fun cool. fact there. Yeah, cool. The I was me and my uh me and Ashley have been watching through uh The Chosen and yeah. there was an episode last season where uh they have Matthew basically put the tassels back as he's beginning to um 
believe I guess is the wrong word, but he's beginning to follow God once again. He puts the tassels back on his uh, on his robe. So I was like, oh, like it's a fun connection point there to even in that scene. Obviously extra biblical, but still cool. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, chapter 16 gives us one of the craziest stories in Numbers. I say one of because there's another one that's coming up. I don't remember if it's this week or next week now, but uh, this one's a crazy one for this week. So a Levite named Korah uh, brings together a group of men to rebel against Moses and Aaron. Uh, he wants to be in charge instead of them. And so Moses tells them to prepare for God's answer tomorrow and and then rebukes them, which again, that's a terrifying, like, okay, well, we'll see what God says about this in the morning. Uh, and so this is verses eight through 10. It says, and Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi, is it too small a thing for you that God, that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation and minister to them, and that he has brought you near him and all of your brothers, the sons of Levi with you, and would you seek the priesthood also? And so remember, Korah is, he's a Kohathite. And so he he is a member of the clan that they they get the honor of transporting the yeah. holy arguments, mm-hmm. the arguments, the, the holy <laughs> objects of the tabernacle. Uh, they're the ones who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant and the altar and the incense and the lampstand, like all these different things. Uh, and Moses is basically saying, is that not enough? Like God has singled not just the tribe of Levi, which kind of gets... Um, they they get that blessing of being the firstborn now, uh, not just the Kohathites who have been blessed to actually have kind of the most honored position within the Levites. Basically, Moses saying, is that not enough for you? You need to have the priesthood as well. Uh, so this is followed by Moses continuing to rebuke the group. And then the next day, Yahweh is furious. Uh, and boy, this comes up so much in the book of Numbers. Uh, he tells Moses to get away from the people so he can kill everyone. Uh, Moses and Aaron beg for mercy, which God grants. And so after that, God tells the people to separate themselves from Korah and the other leaders of the rebellion. So it's not just Moses and Aaron, get out of Dodge. It's everyone, get away from this group of people. Uh, and after that is done, This goes down. So starting in verse 28, it says, And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that uh, and that it has not been of my own accord. If these men all die, if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up, that all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. Uh, Sheol, by the way, is the Hebrew word for the grave. So kind of into into the grave, I suppose, alive. Uh, And as soon as he had finished speaking these words, the ground under them split apart and the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all of the people who belonged to Korah and their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished from in the midst of the assembly. And the Israel and all Israel who were around them fled. <laughs> I, I get it. <laughs> and they're at their cry and said, "Let the earth swallow us up, uh, lest the earth swallow us up." And fire came out from the Lord and consumed two hundred and fifty men offering the incense. I, I sorry, I should say some of the followers of Korah. Moses told them, "Grab." Um, I forgot what they're called. Cisterns. Grab cisterns and offer incense. And censor, a censer. Censer. Thank yeah, you. Censer. Uh, go grab. Ce- Censors and offer incense, so they are killed by God as well. They're not taken down alive into Sheol, at least. So they just they're just consumed <laughs> by fire, uh, which 
as crazy as it sounds, is probably the better fate. Uh, and so, yeah, pretty intense. Uh, God then commands Eleazar, the son of Aaron, to take all of the censors and scatter the coals outside of the camp. So those men who were just killed by God, the censors are still holy. And so he wants the coals removed outside of far outside of the camp. Uh, and then he's going to have the censors brought back in and they're hammered into plating for the altar. And so this is to, it's a reminder for Israel about what happened. So basically whenever anyone sees the altar, they're going to notice, Hey, it's not just gold. There's some bronze on there. It's like, yep, that's the, that's what remains of the people who question God's authority. Uh, so you would think Megan, after all of this, that the people of Israel would have learned their lesson. Uh, but no, they start to grumble again and <laughs> God says he's going to kill everyone. And Moses and Aaron <laughs> beg for mercy. Like, again, this just again. comes up. This just comes <laughs> up a ton. Uh, this time, however, God has already started the plague as they're begging for mercy. So Aaron runs out and he makes atonement for the people. However, 14,700 people would die as a result of oh. the plague. So, yeah, I mean... God's getting pretty fed up with this uh, this particular generation of Israelites. Uh, spoiler alert, it mm-hmm. gets better when we get into Deuteronomy and Joshua. Yep. They they do a good job. But for now, it's just a lot of grumbling and complaining and, and God kind of punishing the people. I think it's really interesting that this this thing about this reminder with the censors, they're, they're, we're hammering this into a reminder because in number 17, our next chapter, we are there's another physical reminder. And so... It always helps me when I read the physical things in the Old Testament, like the tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments, all those things, because there was so much physicality to Israelite religion. And I think it's really interesting because we we sometimes think of our lives as not having anything to do with our physical nature or there's this separation. But in reality, it's all related. And we'll talk about that with some of our Romans readings, too. But um, the people had these these visible reminders, you know, and so sometimes we get a disconnect because we don't have as many of those, but um, it's always a powerful picture of what God is doing. So um, so in number 17, God is going to bring some order because of these rebellions. It is out of control, right? He's going to establish Aaron as the high priest. So there is no doubt Aaron already is the high priest, but God is going to solidify his authority. So he tells um the he tells them the leaders to bring a staff or a walking stick from the head of each tribe place them before the ark in the holy of holies okay so then god chooses aaron's staff so that each each leader of a tribe you know 12 staffs are there but aaron's stick is the one that it buds and blossoms overnight okay so they wait overnight and it brings forth almonds and almond blossoms so this is a miracle because it would have taken weeks in special conditions to get these branches to sprout so it's a reminder that Aaron's being chosen, that Aaron held God's authority. Um, the almond flower represents a lot of things in Scripture. It represents life and holiness, God's presence, and the fulfillment of his promises. Um, so Aaron's staff was was to be kept before the testimony in the ark, and it would stay there, another visible reminder to Israel, okay, um, and as a sign to the rebels in future generations. So interesting, because you've got kind of death and life sitting there. You've got this hammered th- piece of metal that's reminding them about what happened to the rebels, but then you have a beautiful flowering branch that's reminder of, you know, Aaron's uh, authority. Yeah, that's a great point, the contrast mm-hmm. between those yeah. two things. And you'd always, I mean, not that many people would see it because not everybody went in there, but it is interesting that there's both sitting there. Okay. And then we get into Numbers 18. So we're back to some outlining of duties of priests and Levites. And I did want to mention, it can be confusing because we're like, what's happening with the tribe of Levi? Because, um, the priests are from the tribe of Levi, but within the tribe, there are Levites who are not priests, but they're still in the family of the priests. So the Levites are one of the 12 tribes. Within the Levites, you have those who are going to be a priest as a as their career. 
Then you have Levites who are just generally, they're still priestly family. They're helping the priests, but not all of them are priests. And there is a distinction here with what each of them is allowed to do. So the priests have the privilege, which is an awesome privilege. Uh, Verse 7 says it's even the priesthood is a gift from God. They minister before him. And God even says in Scripture he is their portion because they didn't receive the same as the other tribes with allotments, but that God himself is their portion, which is very beautiful. But they also uh, bear a greater responsibility. And they can incur more guilt than the average person if they're not careful because they're closer to God's presence. Uh, Levites who are not priests can assist the priests, but they don't touch the holy vessels or they and the priests can die, which I always think that seems harsh, like, oh my goodness, there's so much death. But God's language here is a warning for their protection, not threat. It's more like God is saying, you know, I'm holy. If you come too close, you could get hurt, but he's caring for them. He's telling them how to protect themselves. It's hope-giving because God is really wanting to protect people and not have them die. Human life is precious to God. Case in point, the rule about the dead bodies that the guys were worried about, they couldn't celebrate Passover, because human life is very precious to God. And that's a theme throughout Scripture. But the, um, So, like, God cares about life. He doesn't want people to die, so he's warning them not to touch the holy things. And the priests also got to eat the meat and the grain and the oil of the edible portion of sacrifices as their food, so they got to eat the best of everything. Um, So they did eat certain parts. Um, And then there's some rules about sacrifices, including we have the law of the redemption of the firstborn, and about tithing is also in this chapter. Um, So I just, the, the meaning I get out of it is that the priests had these greater rights back then, and there was one place where God dwelt but then I'm grateful for Jesus, right? Because we're going to switch to the New Testament here pretty soon. But um, but in Jesus, all these requirements are fulfilled. And so anybody receiving Jesus becomes part of God's family with full access to God. So there isn't any longer any separation of like certain people are closer to God. And, you know, Scripture says the tabernacle is a shadow of the things to come. So we get to relive, live in the reality now of what Jesus has accomplished. So we'll get to that later. But, um, but I think that's pretty cool. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, our last two chapters today are chapters 19 and 20. Um, a lot happens, mostly in chapter 20. Uh, there's, so in chapter 19, uh, we learn about how the water of cleansing is to be made. So when you're imagining people washing themselves to be ceremonially clean, uh, it is actually mixed with the ashes of a red heifer without blemish. So basically, think of a young cow. Uh, and when, you, when you're seeing red, think brown, basically, like a brownish red color. Uh, And so this is followed by a series of commands about how unclean Israelites were to wash and make themselves clean. Uh, So then we get to chapter 20, and this is where, like I said, a ton of stuff happens. Uh, There's a blink and you miss it footnote that Miriam dies. So it just happens. Basically, it's like they came to Kadesh and Miriam died and she was buried there and then it moves on. Uh, And so, yeah, there you go. Moses' sister. This is when she dies. This this won't be the end of uh, Moses' siblings dying. A little spoiler alert there. Oh. Uh, but in this area, there is no water. And surprise, surprise, the people start to complain about this. Uh, the Lord tells Moses he will provide water, which is followed by, this is a little bit of a confusing passage, but also one of the most important passages that we get in Numbers. Uh, so this is starting in verse eight, and this is the Lord speaking. It says, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and bring or and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, hear now, you rebels, 
I love that. Uh, Shall we bring water out of this for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice and water came out abundantly and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, though he, though them, sorry, and through them, he showed himself holy. So again, it's, it's one of those really, cause it's not in detail explained. It's just God commands him, go out and speak to this rock and it's going to bring water out. And then Moses goes out and he says, shall we now bring water out for you? And he strikes the rock twice with his staff. And then God says, okay, well, for that, you don't get to go into Israel anymore. That's a huge, huge deal. Yeah. And the problem is that what did he do? He did the wrong action, right? Right. So he struck it instead of speak to it. But there was another instance where he speaks to it, right? Or where he struck it, where God told him to strike it. So he's, he's doing the other thing like he's doing what he did before, but it wasn't what God said. Right. I think it's the problem there. Well, yeah. I think there's there's one thing going on here. I think all, uh, this is all pretty open-handed because we're having it. You have to read between the lines. I think there's one thing that is almost for sure happening. And there's another thing that I wonder if it's happening. Um, the thing that's for sure happening is what Megan just said. Uh, if, if the Levites and the priests are going to be punished for not doing exactly what the Lord says, so is Moses. So not even the the leader of the people of Israel does not get to escape the fate or the high priest also, because Aaron's a part of this. Uh, they do not get to escape the punishment of not following God's commands. Uh, the other thing, I, the, the line that is interesting to me is, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Um, it's interesting that Moses does not mention the Lord in that moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. so I wonder if this is a bit of pride sneaking into Moses' heart, which again, like Moses for almost the entire story has been one of the most humble characters in the Bible. So it's a bit of a surprise, but it's, it's, I think it's a reminder for us that uh, pride is always waiting <laughs> as far as that goes. Um, but it, it seems in this moment, and I, I want to say it's very open-handedly, this is my conjecture. It seems in this moment that Moses is kind of looking to glorify himself and Aaron as opposed to the Lord in that moment. So it's a good point. Yeah. Who knows? Good point. Uh, so that mistake f- seals the fates of Moses and Aaron, and they are going to be left behind in the wilderness. Uh, for Aaron, it's going to happen really soon. But uh, before that, Moses asks the king of Edom, who remember, these are the descendants of Esau. So this is a sister nation to Israel, uh, to let them pass through the kingdom, which he refuses to allow. And this sets the stage for the relationship between Israel and Edom moving forward. Basically, Edom is going to be a bitter enemy of Israel all the way until Jerusalem falls and shortly after Edom falls as well. So, and it, it's always sad because Jacob and Esau, they make up and they, they love each other in the, in the end and the nations that come from them do not follow suit. So kind of a, kind of a sad story there. Uh, and then our final section today, uh, we're going to see the death of Aaron. So the Lord tells both Moses and Aaron that they are to go up to Mount Hor uh, along with Eleazar, Aaron's son. Uh, once they reach the mountain, Moses is to give the high priestly, or sorry, to, he is to remove the high priestly garments from Aaron and put them on Eleazar. And then at that point, Aaron will die. Uh, everything happens just as God says. So they go up, three of them go up, only Moses and Eleazar return. And we're told that the people of Israel weep for 30 days at the death of their high priest. Mm-hmm. So that's it for Aaron. Eleazar is going to- Yeah, Eleazar mm-hmm. and uh, his son, Phineas are going to, I think it's his son, right? It's not- Aaron's other son? I don't remember. But um, I think it's Aaron's too. Is it the, his two sons? Yeah. They're going to they're gonna play a big role coming up here in a little bit. Uh, but yeah, we see this is the death of Israel's first high priest. This is Aaron is Aaron is done. 
Uh, and Moses is going to continue to lead his people. We're going to see through Deuteronomy, but then we're going to get a similar passage where with both Moses and Aaron, God tells them beforehand that, hey, you're about to die. Basically, prepare yourself. The, the exact phrase is to be gathered to your people. Uh, so it's in one sense, it's sad. In another sense, I think it's a really beautiful way of God just showing that he is in control. Um, and Aaron is done. You know, he, did he do the, a perfect job? No, but, you know, at least he, he did. Do you do his best? Maybe not, but he did a he did an okay job, uh, and so I think it's it's worthy that the people of Israel weep for uh, the death of their high priest. Yeah, that wraps it up for the Old Testament this week. Uh, as a reminder, if you uh, ha- have been enjoying the podcast, we would love for you to leave a five star review on whatever uh, application you are listening on, particularly Spotify and Apple Podcasts. It just helps it get it helps us get it out there more. Uh, and on Apple Podcasts, you can leave a written review, and if you do, we will read it on the air and give you a shout out. All right. Well, with that being said, let's jump into our New Testament readings. All right, we are wrapping up Romans this week, which is one of my favorite of Paul's letters. We talked last week about how it's it's a really dense letter, but it's in the best way. <laughs> it's just so packed with truth. Uh, last week, Paul began to express his hope for the salvation of his Jewish brothers and sisters. And this week, we begin with Paul declaring that Israel is not beyond hope and they are not rejected by God. Uh, as an example, Paul cites the remnant of the time of Elijah. So we'll get to this story in a few months, but you may remember from last year. There's a moment where Elijah feels completely alone. Uh, Jezebel is hunting him, which is what she does because she hates God and she hates his prophets. Uh, But God then reveals to him that there's a remnant of 7,000 men who have not fallen into Baal worship. Uh, And so basically it encourages Elijah and it lets him do what God's commanded him to do. Uh, So now there is another remnant, which is really interesting language. So Paul is saying that the remnant of those 7,000 um, non-Baal, Yahweh worshipers, I guess, and when all of Northern Israel had fallen into Baal worship, it's like the remnant of those Jews who recognize that Christ is the Messiah. So, and I say it's interesting language because a remnant is something that stays. And so you would think the remnant is the people who mm-hmm. reject Jesus and stay with their traditional faith. Um, and the the non-remnant are the people who leave. Uh, but I think Paul's using that language very intentionally because he views it as the remnant are the people who um the people who recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. In other words, that is the true faith. They are remaining in the faith, and the people who have rejected Jesus are choosing to leave the faith. So, really interesting. Again, I, I kind of I'd never thought about it before until I just I just read it. But uh, I, I love the fact that that's what Paul is choosing to say there. That's the language he's using to express that. Uh, Paul continues on with this analogy by showing examples of the Jews rejecting Yahweh all throughout the Old Testament. We just read a bunch of them, so there's there's no. There's no shortage of those examples. Uh, And then Paul then shifts to a metaphor of a tree and how the Gentile uh, believers that he is writing to are being grafted into the tree of God. Uh, Some of the branches of the unbelieving Jews are being cut off, and he ends with the hope that Israel will be saved as well, even if it kind of happens as a bit of a mystery. And this is kind of one passage in Romans 11. Uh, oh, the depths and riches of wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given, him, given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Uh, So in other words, Paul is crying out for the salvation of his Jewish brothers and sisters. And how's it going to happen? Basically, he's saying, I don't know. 
but the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways. Or in other words, he's just praying that God will make a way, even if he doesn't see exactly how it's going to happen. That's really beautiful. I love, I mean, Paul is known as the apostle to the Gentiles, but he never lost his heart for the people of Israel either, and that he wanted them to be saved. So um, I love that about him. I'm going to read Romans 12, 1 and 2. Um, and just keep in mind what Evan just read at the end of chapter 11, because it's a beautiful segue. Um, so remember, yeah, this was all one letter, too. It was not broken up into these different chapters. So Paul says this next. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, I'm going to say I really love those two verses. You may have heard them before. They are taught, taught about a lot, quoted a lot for good reason. They're very important to us as Christians. If you do memorize, um, maybe consider memorizing these two if you haven't yet. Um, I, I just want to say scripture memory is a wonderful way that we do renew our minds. You know, how do we even renew our minds? What does that mean? Well, we have to relearn, you know, we have to think through the things of God and be in prayer and things. Uh, but memorizing scripture is one great way that we can do that. And so, um, so Paul is saying, because you understand all these things, you understand you're now being grafted into the people of God, right? The analogy of the tree, we're now a living branch on that tree. It's not just Israel. We are invited in as the believers in Jesus and the true faith. Um, so because of that, let's do this. Let's be worthy of that, right? Let's do what we can. I mean, we can never fully deserve it, but let's live as a living sacrifice, thankfully not a dead one, um, but a living sacrifice to God. So what that means is, as I mentioned earlier, our physical bodies being involved with our spirituality. It's not, there is no dichotomy. There is no break. It's all related, right? And so what we what we do with ourselves, it does matter. And it's all, all of us matters to God. So as a living sacrifice, we are devoted to God and belonging to him, just like a sacrifice would. Um, and so all of that is important here. Um, and then there are uh, verses three through eight. There's a bit on spiritual gifts. There are different passages in the New Testament, but here there's a few of them mentioned. Um, there is a focus here on humility. Um, the gifts conversation is really prefaced with humility, which I think is significant. Um, we should think seriously and soberly about ourselves, living according to the faith and the grace that God gives each of us, which Paul says we each have a measure of our own. And I love that what he's saying is, look, we God's given each of us something, um, but it's almost like saying we don't need to compare you know, we often, it's so tempting to compare with each other or other people's gifts, but you have your own, you know, and you're created as a special, with a special purpose of your very own. No two people are really alike and that every person has a measure of grace from God and we can, we can develop into those things as we follow him. And so I love all the language here. It's really worth a slow read through. And then verse nine and forward um, is talking about our, our attitudes and our lifestyles um, a really a lot having to do with the way we interact with other people, which is quite different than the ways that the world behaves. Um, and I really like, even if, let's say that you're listening to this and you're struggling with like maybe an interpersonal situation, this is a great passage because it really, there's several things mentioned here with different uh, scenarios of, of relationships and how we should approach them as Christians. And often the question is, especially in a difficult time, 
is what does it look like to love this person with the love of Jesus? You know, not based on their behavior, but based on what God's calling us to do. So Paul is covering some of that, all of which is coming from a renewal of the mind. Absolutely. Well, then I, I put in my notes, this next chapter is one that is really unpopular for different Christians, depending on what political party is in power, <laughs> wherever oh, you no. live. Yeah. Uh, and so this starts off right off the bat, Romans chapter 13, verse one, it says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities and resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur in, will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out the wrath of God on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, another unpopular point, uh, for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. Uh, So Paul then stretches this throughout the chapter to apply to all of our interactions. So this isn't just to the governing authorities, uh, as Christians, we are called to love others. And by this, we show others Christ. Um, In other words, the way we act as citizens, both to leadership and to our neighbors, will either attract people to Christ or lead people to reject him. Uh, And so here's, I want to break this down a little bit. Because I do think there's a line. What what Paul is saying here, and I, I, I don't read this as Paul saying, no matter what the government tells you to do, always obey because we see plenty of examples in acts where the government is like, Hey, enough preaching this Jesus thing. And Paul's like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. Uh, so there's clearly a line basically when, when the government is, uh, commanding you to sin, or in other words, to do something that God has told you not to do, or to not do something that God has told you to do. That's the line. Uh, I think for a lot of us though, we move that line really far back (laughs) where it's, it's, it's all of a sudden essentially what, what Paul's getting at here is we are, to, as Christians, it's our job to respect authority, to be good citizens. And the reason for that is because it shows them Christ. It shows our leaders Christ. Like our, as Christians, are we known as just a rebellious subgroup of, of people? Are we known as people who constantly buck authority? Or are we known as loving and, passion, or loving and compassionate people? Uh, when we're interacting with our neighbors, is everything that we talk about with our neighbors, is that... Um, is it about how we disagree? Is it about how what we think is wrong? Or do we love and do we show people that we live with, that we live around Jesus? Uh, and this is a theme in almost all of Paul's letters. He he spends a portion talking about how important it is for uh, Christians to act a certain way because we are showing Christ to people uh, who haven't yet met him. We're showing Christ to people who maybe have never heard of him. And when we act in a way that is arrogant, when we act in ways uh, that that put Christ in a poor light that reflects not just poorly on us, but it reflects poorly on Jesus. And it, it, and and God forbid, uh, our actions lead others to reject Christ. Cause that would be, that would be just an ultimate, uh, an ultimate evil and ultimate, uh, sadness to come through that, that sort of thing. So that, that's kind of the idea of, of that chapter of Romans. So when we get to Romans 14, Paul is continuing this theme of how we behave toward one another. So the first part is covering really looking after those 
he says, weaker in faith. But this isn't people who are weak in a, in a sense that they just don't have any strength. Really, he's referring to people who are learning how to follow Jesus, maybe newer to faith. They just might not have the same sense of freedom in Christ that we do. So he he talks specifically about food laws um, or food, food um, the way that people eat, because back then that was something that really could be religious. For example, if a food was uh, devoted to an idol of a pagan god or something and you ate it, then one person might consider that to be an abomination because it's an offense and you shouldn't do that because it's idolatry. Someone else would say, it doesn't matter because all things are clean. You know, to me now I can eat as I want to. I'm not under the law. And so, but um, but for the person who is sensitive towards that, the greater point that Paul makes is we need to be sensitive towards them because for them, it could be a stumbling block. So what we don't want to do is place a stumbling block, and it says it in verse 13, uh, in anyone's way. So instead of worrying about judging the other person, we want to make sure that we're actually not placing a stumbling block in their way, and we're living peaceably and helping each other be built up in the faith. So it's a beautiful conversation to have. It's it's very important. Um, modern day, I thought of uh, perhaps music. So some people only prefer to worship to uh, listen to worship music, and some people really are like, no, I can listen to anything. So that's one where it's not an issue of critical doctrine what you prefer, but to one person it might it might make them stumble. And if it does, then I don't want to force them. Let's say they're at my house to listen to something that could be offensive to them. So that's kind of a modern day example. But. Yeah, I think another really good example would just be um, like alcohol. Like yeah. a lot of people mm-hmm. feel like, hey, I, I, the Lord's asking me not to drink at all. Right. Other people mm-hmm. feel complete freedom to do that. So that's yeah. another thing of yeah. if you're if you're hanging out with someone who feels like they, they shouldn't be drinking, maybe don't crack open a cold one, you know, just yeah, drink something exactly. Else. Just do do what do what helps. And remember that we we live for Jesus and then for others. Right. And not just ourselves. And again, kind of like in ver- in uh, chapter 13 with the pol- uh, political stuff. It really isn't as much about my rights and what I am able to do to push the line. It's more about what is the most edifying thing for everyone involved. Um, and these are not, again, these are not issues of like salvation doctrine or something like that. These are issues that we would consider uh, that there are some different opinions. So, okay. Uh, verse 19 says, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. So I like that that, that kind of captures the rest of the thoughts. And um, that chapter is great with its mix of theology and then clear practical guidance for how we approach decisions and situations. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the penultimate chapter of Romans uh, deals with a lot of the same problems or a lot of the same subjects, I suppose. Uh, it's discussing the importance of self-denial for the sake of Christ. Uh, and his first example is obviously the biggest one you could ever cite, Jesus. If there's if there's one person who ever showed what it was like to live a life of self of humility and self-denial for a greater purpose, it is it is Christ who obviously uh, denied himself a lot of what he could have had here on earth if he if he had wanted to. Famously illustrated in the whole um, rejecting the temptations of Satan as well. All of those are things that God could have done himself, but he didn't. Uh, so if Christ allowed himself to be mocked and taunted and yet accepted us, how can we not accept others? So in other words, as Jesus is on the cross, he's looking into the eyes of the people who he is dying for as they're actively murdering him. And if, if that's what Jesus does, then we are called as Christians to do the same in an even lesser, because none of us are in, well, I shouldn't say none, but very, very few of us are ever in that particular situation. But a lot of us every day are in the situation where we can ex- where we can exercise some self denial for the sake of Christ, yeah. uh, as he continue on, I love as he continues on. I love how Paul describes how he feels about boasting in salvation. So this is verses seventeen through twenty one. 
It says, In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. And so once again there, Paul is just talking about how he's giving credit to God for the ministry that he's been able to accomplish here. Uh, And also at the very end, what's he doing? He's taking an Old Testament passage and he's reminding his readers that, again, the idea of the truth of God's word spreading beyond the nation of Israel is something that has been prophesied about since since the very beginning. So really cool stuff from the, Paul there. Uh, the rest of the chapter shows Paul uh, letting the Roman church know why he hasn't had a chance to make it to them yet. So th- I love these passages because they're a little bit, I mean, boring is maybe the wrong word, but they're just kind of like weird inclusions they can seem like. And it, 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 when we forget that what we're reading is a real letter from a real person, this can seem really odd. When we remember that that's what it is, all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah. And he's like, because literally he's just like, you know, guys, I'm sorry I haven't had a chance to make it over there yet. I'm hoping to drop by on the way to Spain. First, I have to go to <laughs> Jerusalem, uh, which if it's if it's that time that Paul goes to Jerusalem, then that means he's going to be meeting the Romans pretty darn soon because yeah. he's going to be in prison there. For, well, I guess mm-hmm. not pretty darn soon, but he'll be in prison in Jerusalem for a few years and then make his way up to Rome will be mm-hmm. his next mm-hmm. big stop. So there you go. But I, it's a good reminder where I, I think often about just the different genres of scripture and how it's important that we read them all differently. And you brought up, Megan, earlier that I think particularly in the letters, the chapters and verses do us a real big disservice because that's definitely not how the authors are writing. All Because when you write a letter, not that any of us write letters anymore, but I guess when you have conversations or write an email or whatever it is, um, you're not giving chapters and verses. All of the thoughts are connected, which means every thought is connected to the thought before, which is connected to the thought before. Um, So I think that's a really good reminder. This is another great reminder. That's what we're reading. We're reading letters. Uh, And then he ends his portion of this letter, or at least this portion before he gets to the really fun logistics that Megan's going to talk about here in a second uh, with these wonderful words. And this is how he closes out chapter, chapter 15. He says, I appeal to you brothers by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the spirit to strive together with me in your prayers for God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that God, God's will I may continue, sorry, so that by God's will I may continue to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Okay, and we finally get to the last chapter or just the end of the letter. I do appreciate what you said, Evan, because this is like how we talk about context, right? That if you were to read this as one letter, you're going to read your friend's whole letter in one sitting, most likely, right? Unless you're getting up and coming back. But, um, but they all are connected. So we in our in our um, Tuesday night community dinners, we call it dinner church. We we like to use something called the Jesus stories, which is a book. Um, It's just the New Testament stories about Jesus in the Book of Acts, but it's without any of the verse markers. Because that way you can read it like a story. And it's amazing the difference when you get the verses out of the way. One of my favorite theologians calls that versitis when we just get <laughs> we get stuck on yeah, individual. True. But anyway, so it just helps to remember, read it as a story, read it as one thing, and it helps us all with context. So um, this is the end of the letter. Um, so the first 16 verses are greetings to all kinds of different people. 
But fun fact, there is an instruction to greet each other with a holy kiss. Hey-o. So, you know, there you go. There's your your rationale for uh, kissing other people. I mean, this was way before COVID. So, And then interesting, though, after the greetings, this is very interesting to me. It's almost like, okay, I can't forget to tell you this because it's really important, right? Paul has a few warnings for the church. So specifically about people who create divisions and obstacles these are pulling against the doctrine. They're they're causing people to be focused on issues and they're creating problems. Um, these people should really be avoided. The language here is pretty strong because these people are serving their own appetites and they are deceptive. So Paul is actually making sure that the church is remembering probably because he's noticed some problems with that. So the, that's very interesting that he makes sure that that's in there at the end. And to close this out and put a bow on Romans for us, I'm going to read the last couple verses. So 25 through 27. And this is Paul for us. Now, to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. It's beautiful, but also talk about a run-on sentence, Paul. Would it kill you to put a put a period in there a couple of times? But what are you what are you gonna do? And that wraps it up for one of our uh, favorite books of the Bible. That is Paul's letter to the Church of Rome, otherwise known as the Book of Romans. But that's not the end of our New Testament readings today. We're we're starting out. It feels a little bit weird to just start off like a book, but and then, and then we're gonna cut it off. But we are beginning the Gospel of Matthew. So it's our second Gospel of this year. Remember, we read the Gospel of Luke to start it off. So right off the bat, you may notice some thematic differences between Luke and Matthew, uh, where Luke is clearly written to an audience of Gentiles. Matthew is written to a Jew- Jewish audience, and he's very concerned with finding all of the connection points between the Old Testament and Jesus, specifically with the idea of here's how Jesus fulfills the messianic prophecies that we've seen in the Old Testament. And so you'll you'll see it. it's almost like uh, it's almost like footnotes where Jesus will do something and then Matthew will just write in this was to fulfill and then he'll cite the uh, not the chapter and verse obviously, but he'll he'll cite the actual um, the text that he's going for. So pretty cool. Uh, so the book of Matthew though starts off with everyone's favorite things, a genealogy. Yeah! Burr, 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 burr. Woo! As if we didn't have enough of them in numbers. I was hoping we'd have one more. I know. Well, I guess numbers isn't technically <laughs> genealogies. It's like uh, that's a full numbering of all the people there. But, you know, it's the same, same, same vibe, at least. Uh, so the first chapter of Matthew is making clear, number one, that Jesus is the Messiah. And he said, I believe it's said three times right off the bat. Uh, Matthew, again, he's very concerned with letting his readers know, hey, this Messiah we've been looking forward to. His name is Jesus. This is him. Uh, and then he traces his line through his father, Joseph, or his adopted father, Joseph. He traces it starting from Abraham all the way to David, to uh, from David to Zerubbabel, and then finally to Joseph. And so he's making what he's making clear there is that Jesus is in the line of kings. Uh, and so obviously the trace from Abraham to David is showing that Jesus is uh, of Jewish descent all the way to the beginning. Uh, David to Zerubbabel is the uh, the first king of the United, I guess I shouldn't say the first because Saul, but the first good king of the United uh, um, Israel and Judah, and obviously the one who begins the main dynasty. And then Zerubbabel, he's not a very well-known character, I think, unless you've like really been reading, but he is not a king. Remember, though, he is the governor of mm-hmm. Judea when the Jews returned from exile, and he is also in that line of kings. So it's showing that Jesus is not just 
in the line of kings, which he is, he's also in the line of just the good leaders of Israel as well. Uh, and the granted, there's some bad ones in there as well. Um, I like that it, it shows because you know obviously Jesus is descended from Solomon, and it's not even he doesn't even name uh, Bathsheba. It's the wife of Uriah because even Matthew's a little bit uncomfortable with all of David's uh, all of David's sin going on there. Uh, but then Matthew goes on, and this is where we're going to wrap it up. He goes on to share a story that we all know well. This is starting in verse 18. Through the end of the chapter, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, her husband Joseph, being just a man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. And so I, I wanted to bring this connection point. Remember, we read last week, about how a husband could accuse his wife of adultery. And what would have to happen there is she would stand before the priest and she would have um, curses written upon a scroll. They would be washed into water. She would drink it. It would be a very public thing. People would know this was going on. So that is what Joseph is wanting to avoid. So I love that little connection point there. Uh, In verse 20, it says, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. So there's one of Matthew's inserts. Uh, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. He's quoting Isaiah there. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Well, you know, I can't wait to find out more about this Jesus fella in the the weeks to come. That'll be exciting. Uh, But that is not this week. That wraps it up for the New Testament, but we do have some Psalms to go over. Okay, so we have four psalms this week, Psalms 27 through 30. Uh, psalm 27 is a psalm of David that rejoices in the security and trusting in Yahweh, uh, beginning with the phrase, the Lord or Yahweh is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? And ending with, wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Uh, I just love the way that, I love the way it's bookended there. It's a very oh. cool, it's a very cool reminder. And I, even the idea of David reminding himself, yes wait for Yahweh, wait for the Lord. Uh, psalm 28 is another Psalm of David. In this Psalm, David cries out for help. However, we actually see David praise God for his reply within the same Psalm, which I thought was really interesting because usually it's one or the other. It's either the whole Psalm is crying out for help or the whole Psalm is rejoicing in God's answer. Uh, and this one, you get both. So starting in verse six, it says, blessed be the Lord for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him, my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exults and with song, I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people and he is the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. So really cool thing there. Uh, In Psalm 29, this is a beautiful Psalm praising God for all that he has done. And it commands Israel to ascribe glory to the Lord for a multitude of different things. So as you read through it, it'll be like, praise God for this, praise God for this, praise God for this. So I I love Psalms that are kind of built up that way. Uh, And then Psalm 30 is the final Psalm of the week. And it is a Psalm of thanksgiving from death. Uh, And it has this very famous line, especially if you grew up in the type of church that I grew up in, where we sang a lot of Israel Houghton songs. Uh, But it makes me think about how this is fulfilled in Christ much later. So this is Psalm 30, verse five. 
It says, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And the song is just, though the sorrow may last for the night, his joy comes in the morning. Yes, we used to sing that too. It's a good, it's a good vibe. I love me, I love me a worship song that's mostly based in the Psalms. It's a good time. Uh, but it, it makes me think about we're you know we're coming up on the Easter season right now. We're in Lent. Uh, it makes me think about the weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And what's the ultimate example of that? Uh, the weeping of Good Friday and the re- the the joy that comes with the resurrection of Christ on Easter morning on Sunday morning. So uh, I can't help but think about it as I read that. There is kind of like almost an ultimate fulfillment of that of that idea. So hold on, hope that's helpful for you. All right, well, that does wrap it up for all of the Bible reading stuff this week. So now let's talk about what we learned today. Okay, so for me this week, I've been thinking about the comparisons between the Old Testament and then the New Testament. And I think what I love is I mentioned a little bit of this earlier, but um, there's a lot going on in the Old Testament with requirements and who had access to the presence of God, right? And there were limitations there, there were differences in people. But when we come into Jesus, we have access to God. We have full access to God. And I love that in Christ, everything required has been fulfilled. And so because of him, we can rejoice and we have a new life because of Jesus and his blood. And then I also love that in that, though, he really calls us to not only live for ourselves, right? God is so focused on um, helping other people and that we really, part of our lives, should always be looking like looking to bless and help someone else, which it comes up over and over and over in the New Testament. But I feel like that's a big focus for me this year is how we treat one another is really always important to God and that a a Christ follower is someone who grows into that and being able to always look to the other as well and not just themselves. So I love that. No, great, great reminder. Um, Realistically, my application probably would have been about the way that we're commanded to treat, basically act as citizens under a government, but I already went into that. So (laughs) I I guess my other one would be um, what Moses says to Korah. And basically he points out that God has already set you aside for these things and and yet you want more. Um, And granted, I'm not a Kohathite and I'm not trying to get myself on the priesthood here. Um, but I do, it did make me think about what in my life do I, do I not show gratitude for God for because I want more? Um, and, and where should I be content with where God has me? Where should I be content with, with what I'm doing instead of feeling, and, and I, I want to be careful because I think there's a healthy angst that sometimes the Lord gives us when it's time to like, hey, I want you to do something new. Um, but I think other times if God has you somewhere, and this is where you're this is where you're called to, but maybe we're not quite satisfied in it. Is that is that an indication that maybe our desires aren't aligned with the Lord's? Um, because obviously Korah should have been satisfied with the ministry that God had given to him, but instead he wanted more. He wanted more glory. Um, and so I think it's a good reminder for us today that do we are we earnestly seeking God for what he would have us do, or are we trying to go after our own glory? Are we trying to do something different than what God would have us do? So that's my thought for today. And our final portion or our final segment of the day, we did have a question come in. It was close. It came in at the last minute. I thought we were going to have a questionless uh, episode, but we did not. So let's answer it today. Woo-hoo. Okay. So it says, hello, while reading through this week's plan, I'm kind of stumbling, stumbling over the last part of Romans 329 through 31. I'm not really sure how to phrase the question, so it's a little long-winded. Sorry about that. Nothing to be nothing to be sorry about. If there's anything, if there's anyone who understands being long-winded, it's me. Uh, it essentially says that 
that essentially says, do we ignore the law? No. For is the only, uh, oh, so it says fairy here, but I don't think that's what was supposed to be typed. I don't know what the word would be though. But is the only way to fulfill the law, I'm using the NLT version. Uh, if that makes a difference, which on a side note, it's super cool that you can switch and compare translations on the Bible app. Absolutely true. I used that actually today for, uh, I was reading something in the NASB and I was like, wait a second. And I switched over to ESV and I was like, okay, that's what it's trying to say. Uh, does this mean that we are somewhat tied to the old covenant laws? I understand Jesus' ultimate sacrifice ushered in the new covenant, but is that spelled out anywhere in the New Testament? For those of us who are maybe new to using the Bible as a resource for our faith. Again, sorry, it's so long-winded. Hope you are well. Uh, this is a great question. So essentially, it's what is our um, what is our responsibility to the old covenant? Uh, and this is kind of, it's kind of an open question in some open-handed question in some ways, and it's a more close-handed question in another. And here's what I mean by that. There's some things that the Bible is clear on. Uh, for instance, in the, in the book of Acts, remember that Peter has the dream about all of the unclean food that's coming down. Uh, and he's, he's basically told, Hey, I don't, I, I, I won't eat this Lord. Like he thinks it's a test from God when, when God says, eat it. And then he tells him, no, you do not. I, I have just, I've declared this is clean. You don't get to call it unclean anymore. Um, so right there, that wipes out all of the dietary laws of the old covenant. Uh, we also know that when Paul is doing his ministry, he is very clearly telling the Gentiles that they do not have to be circumcised, which before, if you were going to be, um, we talked about a little bit today, if you're, if you, if you're a foreigner living in Israel and you want to worship Yahweh, uh, you are going to be under the covenant of Israel. Part of that would be circumcision. And so we, we kind of have to glean principles from that. So those are both close-handed things. It's not arguable. Um, as modern Christians, we are not held to old covenant dietary laws, and we are not held to the covenant of circumcision. Um, I think what we can do there is we can apply the principles a little bit wider and get an idea of what kind of applies to us today, for lack of a better term. Um, and this, this is based off, it's years ago that I read it, but this is based off of a, uh, an article that the Gospel Coalition put out, which is really good. Um, but I, I, I would say there's three types of laws that we find in the, in the Torah or in the Pentateuch. Um, and they would be moral laws. So this is good. This is wrong. Uh, there would be laws of purity or, or cleanliness. And this would be, you know, if you do X, then you are unclean or clean. Uh, and then the third law would be civil law as far as like what the courts would decide, the punishment for, for breaking sin. Uh, so I think pretty clearly the cleanliness laws no longer apply to us. Um, so all the list of things that make you clean or unclean, we we don't have to go slaughter a red heifer and burn it and take its ashes and then uh, make ourselves ceremonially clean. Uh, I think that is pretty uncontroversially, not something that applies to us today. Uh, I also think that the laws as far as the punishment for sin no longer apply to us today. So for instance, if someone commits adultery, uh, is it wrong? Absolutely. Do we take them outside and throw stones at them until they die? No, I, I don't think that's something that's required of us under the new covenant as well. Um, so the the question that gets into it, and this is where it gets very interesting and there's scholars on and theologians on both sides that agree or disagree. Uh, what do we do with the moral law? inside of the old covenant. Uh, and on the one hand of the spectrum, it can basically say, unless there is, it's specifically mentioned in the New Testament, it no longer applies to us at all. Um, I would land, I'm pretty close to that, but where I would land is, sorry, and I guess the other end of the spectrum would be every moral law under the old covenant applies to us today. Um, where I would land is basically looking at the principles behind, behind the law. Um, we're clearly called to love God and to love our neighbors. And the law gives us a pretty good idea of a lot of how that would work. 
Uh, so, and I, I think there's a, a bunch of things that are like that. There's a lot of principles that we can that we can take out of the old covenant law and that we can apply today. Um, so, a really good example would be I, I brought this up, I think when we were going through Leviticus or something. But one of the laws is if you are um, if you are a a man and you die, um, it would be your brother's job to marry your wife and have children. Those children would count as your children. Um, and then that they would be able to move forward and claim your inheritances and things like that. Um, I don't think that command applies to us today, but the principle behind it, I think is a really good one where if I died, um, I would want my brother to make sure that Ashley and my family are taken care of. And obviously it doesn't look like taking her on as a second wife or anything like that. Um, but I would, I would want my brother involved or I want, uh, my brother and my brother-in-law and sister involved in all those different things as well. Um, so for me, I'm looking at principles. How can we apply them? And I, I, this is a really confusing answer, I guess, but that's kind of how, that's kind of how I view it. I would say the moral law for the most part applies to us today. I think the ceremonial law and the civil law do not apply to us. Megan, I don't know if you have additional thoughts there. I have a few thoughts. Um, I agree with everything you're saying. I think it is a really important question. So thank you to the person who sent it in because it can be confusing. We're like, wait, all of a sudden, are we supposed to become Jews? This was an issue with some of the New Testament, the earliest believers too. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of debates and even like meetings about how do we handle circumcision? How do we handle these things? Because you know, as Paul said, and we read this earlier, we actually, as as what most of us are Gentiles, or if you are a Jewish person, I'm excited that you're here. Um, but we are grafted into Israel. So what does that mean? Well, there's a couple things. First of all, the Old Covenant, this is the Old Testament stuff, is a covenant that God made with Israel, okay, specifically with the nation of Israel, okay? So they followed it because that's their covenant with God. But in Jesus, okay, all of the covenants, there's five, actually five total covenants, Sinai being one of them in scripture. And Jesus, the, the covenant, the new covenant in the, that comes because of the blood of Jesus is new, okay? And it actually fulfills all of the old covenant. And so thanks to Jesus, he has fulfilled it. And he often did things where it's not that he was breaking Torah in the sense of like not upholding God's law but he upheld the true spirit of it, which is what Evan was also referring to. So the, the Old Testament is very useful. I love the Old Testament, but it shows us who God is, right? Through the Torah, we can learn who God really is, what he values, and um, and there's a lot of things that we should be listening to um, that we are asked to do. But with Jesus, I found this really good scripture in Matthew, okay, where um, somebody tried to trap Jesus in a question. So this is Matthew 22, uh, 35 through 40, it says one of them, a Pharisee, um, try, an expert in religious law, tried to trap Jesus with this question. And he says, teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? And here's was what Jesus replied, okay? You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. So Jesus is boiling it down. Evan, did you have? Nope. Okay. So honestly, I love that because it's like, okay, breathe out, breathe out. You know, we don't have to, we can eat bacon, right? We can, there are things that we can do that are, that are okay. Um, but Jesus also does, he never lacks in calling us to righteousness. So it's not that we don't have standards, but we're Christ followers. Okay. 
And I would say that um, there's just a lot of good examples where Jesus was good at upholding the spirit of what God was trying to do. Um, and so I think that we can we also hear the language in Romans 3.31, part of her question, when it says, when Paul is like, well, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. I think what he's saying is not, yeah, you have to uphold the law as a prescription. Instead, I what I'm getting here is that he's saying, no, we're upholding it because by faith, we're living by faith. And even if we're Gentiles, it's okay. We don't need to be circumcised because we're living through faith. Therefore, we are holding true to the spirit of the law because of because of Jesus, if that makes sense. So, yeah. yeah. All right. Hopefully that it, it was a, a little bit of a long-winded question, like you said, but a very long-winded answer as well. So hopefully, <laughs> hopefully that helped out. Uh, well, that does wrap it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. As a reminder, we are a podcast of The Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of The Grove Church. You can find our other resources on our website, grove.church, under the media tab. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry that The Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. There's a give button in the upper right-hand corner. And hey, thank you all so much for listening and have a great week. <laughs>